This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are going natural. Gluten-free? No, not gluten-free. Organic? Maybe, actually. It depends whether you're talking about how the show is created or how we ended up producing it. No, no, no. I know where you're going with that, Rick, and it's not working. Yeah, you're right. We are actually diving into the confusing list of things that include natural, organic, sustainable, biodynamic, all kinds of words that probably make no sense to you. But we're going to tell you why it matters just a little bit. We're going to do it in English, not wineish. we promise. And when we're done, someone is probably going to be pretty ticked at us. I can hardly wait. Yeah, it's what we do here. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. One area in wine that causes tons of confusion for normal wine drinkers is the descriptions that include things like organic or sustainable or natural wines. It also gets the blood boiling of some less normal people. And by less normal, I mean some of the folks who don't quite get that wine is not a good subject for a holy war. We are not into holy wars here. So we're going to try to straighten some of this out. But before we do, Paul, do you think we can get away with calling ourselves normal? Well, you're certainly less normal. I have not often been called that, no. So, <laughs> and frankly, my wife would agree with you. Yeah, I bet she would. <laughs> all right. But these things all mean something different. And for somebody out there who sees these labels in stores and hears these discussions and tends to just run away from it all, we thought what we do is we're going we're gonna to sort these out sort of one by one so at least you know what the screaming or the descriptions are all about. So how about we start with sustainable? Okay. Sustainable means you can keep going. And in terms of farming, it means that you use practices that don't exhaust the land, that keep the land in balance. Um, it's a pretty complicated sort of set of analyses that you have to do in order to make the study to show that you're really sustainable. Um, I was part of the group. You know, the, the area that really led the way in this is Lodi, right right here outside yeah. of Sacramento. Right, right, right. Um, and they developed a whole set of Lodi rules, which determine basically how you should use various things in the vineyard so that you can continue to say you're sustainable. To me, the real question, and, and the, I had a client who once pulled me aside and he said, look, he said, we could file all that paperwork and we'd certify as sustainable. But I got to tell you, you know how I explain it to people? I tell them I live in the middle of my vineyard. I have my two children living in the middle of the vineyard. How do you think I'm going to farm that vineyard? Right. And well, that's a pretty good definition of sustainable. Yeah, and, and there are, you've probably seen, some people might have seen, and you see, you know, if, if folks are any at all into farm to fork or any of that sort of thing, you often see these uh, certified sustainable certificates, right. and they go to all sorts of things, including wine. Yep. But fundamentally what it, meant, what it means is if there were no change in resources, if there were no change in and climate, if there's no change in anything, you know, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, things would still be in the same kind of balance that right. they are now. Right. So that that's that's in some ways easier. What it, sustainable does not require, however, is any connection to organic. Or biodynamic. Or biodynamic. And we're going to yeah. get to biodynamic because that's sort of an extension but sort of not of organic. So let's, let's talk about organic because that's the joke that we were doing earlier rather badly, I might add. But the joke we were doing earlier— Well, you earlier, did your part badly. I, I thought my part was rather well, good. Fine, fine. Now you're giving away the fact that we've talked about this before. Uh, yeah. The uh, see, this is what happens if you let us plan. So don't let us <laughs> do not let us plan. Um, so, but organic actually means a couple of different things because it can be applied to a couple of different parts of the process. Right, because you can make wine from organic grapes which is to say that the vineyard is organic, and then you can make wine in an organic way at the winery. Um, without using organic without grapes, Without using too. organic grapes. Or with, depending. Yeah. Right. So those are two different elements of the same, of the same picture. And are there any particular uh, definitions that apply? For example, whether it's pesticides or chemicals? Well, the, or... Basic, the basic rules in orga uh, organic farming are that you can only use materials that naturally occur in, in the earth. So, for example, you can apply sulfur to your vineyard. Can I use gold? You could, you, you know, Rick, 
uranium is natural. You could spray uranium on your grapes, and you would still qualify as— it, You'd make radioactive the wine. The glowing wine might be working in a supermarket yeah. wall. That would stand yeah. out. But the, the basic Look concept the behind organic <laughs> is that it's it's not using these these products of the what do they call it the military um, chemical Mil- industrial military complex. That's right. Yes. That whole cursed concept. them all. Cursed, right. cursed all of those yeah. people. Right. And it makes a certain amount of sense. Um, on the other hand, one of the things that happens, I, there are some analyses that have been done that says someone who is farming organically is probably going through his vineyard three or four or five times more often than someone who is applying a more effective uh, treatment that would be used much less and consequently spewing diesel fumes all over the grapes four, there four or five times more. And, and that doesn't mean it's, they're not using fertilizers or pesticides. They are just naturally occurring versions right. of fertilizers or pesticides. Right. So it is it is a chosen. And yeah. then an offshoot of that, and, um, and this is a subject well, for— b- Before we get oh, into oh, okay. offshoots, I do think we ought to talk about it. I don't know anyone who can taste a glass of wine blind and tell you whether it is sustainable, organic, biodynamic. These are processes. Right. But they don't necessarily affect what your mouth and nose perceive as the flavor of the wine. Right. And this is not to disparage, by the way, any one of those things, because as we will say a few times before we're done with the subject, is there are some beautiful wines made all these ways and some beautiful wines not made these ways. Yes. And it does have to do with the care. And, you know, there is an argument that because you've chosen some of these things, sometimes you may have chosen to spend more attention on your vineyard or your right. winemaking simply because right. that's what you do. You know, if uh, it's but I've also seen that on Cutthroat Kitchen where they can't use anything but a, a <laughs> lobster claw. nothing but the best shows. No, it's it, that really just taking us down the wrong way. All right. So <laughs> then and then there's biodynamic. And biodynamic is more controversial. There's some people that think that it is maybe a little too far. There are people that use some of the biodynamic techniques, but not all of them. What is the specific definition of biodynamic? Well, there are a couple of different ones. And one of them, you have to be a little careful here, because the guy who invented the term is a guy by the name of Rudolf Steiner. And he was pretty darn crazy. And he was, he's, he's been around, he's not alive anymore. He's, he's not alive. Yeah, he's, that's what happens. You know, <laughs> you come up with something come up like that. Next thing you know, you're dead. Out. Yeah. Um, but he had a whole vision of creating agricultural products using only the rhythm of the of the spheres, the rhythm of the earth, the the influence of the planets, the sun, solar and lunar cycles and the resources on your own property. His theory was that you should import nothing from outside. Um, in fact, there are treatments. He There's one famous treatment that needs to be prepared in a cow horn that needs to be buried on your farm. And then you pull it out and you take what was in the cow horn and you spray it on your vineyard and that improves things. But he insists that the only way this is effective is if the cow horn comes from a cow that is living and was born on your property. Right. And so... You know, there are many, many people who would argue uh, one side of it and many, many who would argue the other. And the one side is that, you know, really? Is this this is just making stuff up? The other side is, look, there's a logic to this, which is that everything is from the same place. Everything has been integrated to the same place. In a sense, if you wanted to really decompose uh, biodynamic, it's that things have decomposed on your own property and have integrated right. and taken the nutrients and they created their own right. ecosystem within your own property. Right. Now, there it's funny because there are really smart people on both sides of the controversy yes, right. about biodynamics. If you want some fun, um, go to a website called Biodynamics is a hoax. Yeah, that's Stu Smith uh, from Stu Smith, Smith and who has a very strong and very funny uh, analysis of biodynamics. But on the other hand, I've visited some real, I mean, some of my favorite wines are made by people who farm biodynamically. Right. And I have to say, I was visiting a guy recently in Spain who farms biodynamically, and his training was as a chemical engineer. And I pulled him aside and I said, Excuse me, but I have to ask this question. You know, do you really plant according to where the moon and the sun and the stars and all of this? And he said, well, he said, you have to understand that um, I know from my background that a passing 747 flying over my vineyard from Iberia Airlines has more 
gravitational impact than the planet Jupiter. But at the same time, this concept of understanding your own piece of property so deeply that you can farm within it is a valuable prospect. So do I accept all of the principles of, of Rudolf Steiner? No. Do I follow the guidelines set up by modern interpretation that say if you do this, you're kind of in the ball game? Yeah, I do that. And I actually think that my vineyard needs less treatment because of that. And it works. Huh? So hard to argue. Yeah. Stu Smith makes good wine. So does this other guy. They're both right. And if that Iberia plane drops an engine, it has definitely affected his vineyard. <laughs> All right. And then there's the last one. And we'll do talk a little bit more about this later on the show. But it is, is natural wine, which really is none of these things. It is its own world. It can be some of them, but not all of them, because oh boy. natural wine... Natural has no definition. <clears throat> the other three the have definitions. Natural wine has no definitions. Um, there are some famous writers about wine who have taken the position that a natural wine means a not manipulated wine. Now, what is manipulated, of course, is anybody's guess because... Yes, it certainly is. And, you know, one of the things that you have to look at is some of the manipulations we do today um, are things that were done a thousand years ago. And some of the manipulations that they are willing to accept, things like temperature-controlled tanks, perhaps, those are pretty widespread throughout the industry and have made much better wine. So if you... If you accept modern technology and still make wine, are you no longer making a natural wine? In some ways, I think the argument is, is a little false because um, it implies that that technology is ultimately evil. And I sort of sense that, that some of these writers wish that their wine was made by that guy in the old Italian Swiss colony, right, right. you know, the guy in the Lederhosen, that little old winemaker, me. Yeah, the funny thing was he was in Lederhosen but making Italian wine. Well, in northern Italy. Well, northern okay, Italy. There you go. But the, the real question is how do you make good wine and one of the things you have to accept by most of these definitions of natural wine is that the resulting wine will be less predictable because you are leaving more to say nature and chance and so the show is natural then, isn't it? This one, yeah. it's as natural as it we gets, We are less baby. predictable. <laughs> we are well, completely you, you less know, predictable. We will talk a little bit more about that. You know, the, the natural wine world, there is so much anger in the interior halls of the Church of Wine. And those are the people we make fun Ooh, of. the Church of Wine. Yes, we make fun of those folks. So we will get back to this and maybe make a little bit of fun of them. You are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We'll talk more about those things in a moment. But first, it'll be time to take a few questions from our listeners. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open our mailbag and take some questions. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the air, go to rickandpaulwine.com. Actually, word. they could ask us a question even if we couldn't answer it on the air, couldn't they? I mean, people are going to have questions that we're not going to be able right. to answer. Right. If you have a question that we can't answer, feel free to go ahead and stump us. <laughs> um, and we'll, and then we might read that on the air, too. In fact, frankly, if you ask us a question, we'll probably put it on the air one way or the other. Absolutely. Because we are gluttons for punishment. <laughs> in fact, that brings up our first question. It's from Stephen Hill in Napa, who heard the show for the first time last week, because last week we just started on right. KB1. And he emailed and he said, who are you guys anyway? Well, Steve, that's a fair question. And by the way, we appreciate the fact that you asked that without even a hint of an insult. No, although there is a there is an implied, who are you guys and what do you know? Well, you know, Stephen, not much. Actually, let me, t <laughs> now, let me tell you a little bit about my pal Paul here. He is a veteran of the wine industry. He runs a company that represents wineries and, and wine regions all over the planet. He teaches wine at Napa Valley College. Uh, and he's much smarter than you may think, despite the fact that he is my friend. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's my turn to say nice things about Rick. Not then. really, no. It's not required. Okay. It's not required well. because it's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I get paid the big bucks. Uh, veteran journalist, author, wrote a quite famous book about wine, the the story of the barefoot brand, and a wine commentator on Capital Public Radio, and the chief judge of the California State Wine Competition. Do you have to wear a black robe when you do that? No, no. Actually, you, you just walk around and look stern. Um, and by the way, in case anybody's keeping score, I'm the cute one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
more on point. Here's a real question. Well, a real a question more about wine action. This one is from Anna Zambrano, who lives in Folsom, and I'm going to read you a bit of her question. Hmm. My husband and I like to visit wineries whenever we have the chance. For me, it's always a blind tasting because my vision is 2400. Hmm. Surprisingly, I tend to like either the cheap stuff or the most expensive stuff, stuff because I can't see the price. I can literally only go by taste. Do you have any suggestions on how I can learn a bit more regarding what I'm drinking instead of simply walking in and tasting blindly? Her quotes, her word. So, Anna, wow. I, I have to say, I think that you are doing it right. Yep. I think that everything else, if you know, we all love to learn about the place we go, but we are also affected by what we know about the wine. If somebody tells us the wine is going to be expensive, we may, may like it a little more. If the bottle's got a pretty label, we may like it a little more sort of into, instinctively. And so don't start – my advice is don't ask for, the, for information about the wine until after you've tasted it. Well, it's interesting because, as you know, at the State Fair, we judge everything blind because blind is the only way that you can actually truly analyze a wine for what's in the bottle rather than that bigger picture of what the product is and the brand marketing and all the rest of that stuff. But there's another question here that in here that I think is interesting. How can she learn a bit more about what she's drinking? And certainly one element is um, that that when she um, when Anna when you are tasting because your sight is limited your sense of taste and smell are probably more developed than just about anybody else so you're actually going to be tasting and smelling more than the rest of us one of the things i would recommend is that you know you know Rick you use one of these a lot as well use your phone to to tape record your comments about right. the wine into the phone uh, so that you can play those back and listen to them. Um, remember to write down the name of the wine and write these comments. And it becomes one of the things I've learned about teaching with my students. When you talk about the wine, you feel like you own it more. Yeah, so the more you can talk it through, the more you will own it. Absolutely. And and when you do talk about it, don't be you know don't go looking for flavors. That's the thing that uh, that so many bad wine writers do is they're looking for flavors. And we're going to have some examples. Oh yeah, for you. we'll do that again. But it, it tell you what does it make you think of? What is your reaction? You know, if you had, if you went out to an Italian restaurant and had a plate of pasta, you would talk about textures. You would talk about what it may or may not remind you of. Whatever it is that that plate of food has for you, that's the best way to talk about wine because what you're trying to do is help yourself, in essence, recognize the wine, recognize right. the experiment, the experience. And so the, that's a great. It's a great practice for understanding the wines that you like and don't like as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All and right. actually it would be a really good it would be a really good exercise for people whose sight is perfect to do the same thing. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes from Jill McCarthy in Fresno. She asks hmm. a question that by the way somebody else asked us when we were Tonight dinner. at dinner. So Jill, good question. What kind of wine should be used to cook with when the recipe asks for a dry white wine? And and our friend who we ran into, and I'm sure Jill is implying this, is why don't they just name the darn wine? And that's so the first the first answer is you know the, if you're writing a recipe, you should put that in there. Yeah, but you know it's funny um, if you go into a grocery store and you buy cooking wine, cooking wine actually has. That sugar, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has salt added to it. Oh, and it's got some sweetness to it, doesn't it? Well, it could, but but the they add the salt to make it unpalatable so that they can sell it as cooking wine and not have people buy it to drink. Um, so one of the one of the questions here is dry white wine. Generally, what you want in a wine is you don't want something that has an overpowering flavor. So. Traditionally, people but say— But you also don't want something that you wouldn't drink, really. You don't want it to be so bad, a bad, really, really bad wine. But so you Rick, don't, don't. how bad does a wine have to be In before my case, you won't I, drink it? I've not run across that animal. But, uh, <laughs> but um, for but, most people— <laughs> But for most people, they also say, it's cooking wine. I don't want to fork out $38 no for a bottle of wine to pour into my sauce. I'm just saying don't make it a horrible wine. So here's the, here's my solution, which is, first of all, many, many— inexpensive wines these days have a relatively high sugar content. And that's because the producers have learned that if you add a little sugar to the wine or you leave a little sugar in after fermentation, tastes like soda pop, goes down sweet, great, everybody's happy. Um, 
On the other hand, uh, that amount of sugar in a cooking wine is not really going to affect your recipe right. that much. Right, right, right. So I'd go for something. You don't want a really big flavor. You don't want a big aromatic wine like no. a Muscat that smells no. like a whole bouquet of flowers. And you don't want anything oaky. You so don't want no, anything oaky. Big oaky so Chardonnay, yeah, no. Nice, no, no. simple solution. Pinot Grigio. Pinot Grigio. Pinot Grigio. Great place to go. Has another, another... delicate flavors, relatively dry. You should yeah. be able to find an inexpensive bottle. Yeah. And another good one for me is always Sauvignon Blanc. And it tends to, you know, it, it uh, not a big, crazy one, but Sauvignon Blanc that I know and I trust that's just sort of a gentle Sauvignon Blanc. That's the same thing. It's total. It's going to have right. some yeah. acidity. If but you get one two... of those really cat pee style Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand, I'm not eating that. Maybe not. Maybe <laughs> not. But, uh, but Pinot Grigio certainly is a good place to go. Yep. Simple dry white wine. Okay. That is going to have to be our mailbag for the moment. We will have more questions later in the show. If you'd like to ask us a question about wine or anything, although we don't don't know much about anything, uh, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, some really horrible wine writing and lots more. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Every week we bring you some really horrible wine writing because we want people who don't have access to this stuff to suffer as much as we do sometimes. It's a feature we call Really Horrible Wine Writing. Paul, what really horrible things have you brought in today? Well, I got one here that I think is pretty funny because I, I just don't know what some of it means. Dark ruby garnet color. Those are two different colors. And then it says jazzy aromas. Jazzy aromas. Jazzy aromas. Is, uh, is, is that whiskey. smooth? Maybe it's smooth jazz. Well, I think it's whiskey and <laughs> cigarette smoke. And what else does a jazz club I guess they don't sell. I guess you don't have cigarette, cigarette smoke, smoke anymore. Yeah. No, so, so it just be, a, smells like whiskey. old jazzy or new jazzy. Yeah. Uh, and flavors of spicy blueberry pie, menthol mint, acai, and goji berry with a silky, fruity, yet dry medium body and a sleek, mouth-watering pomegranate finish with chewy tannins. Now, I'm confused because that wine didn't sound to me like it was going to have any tannins at all. I no, thought it didn't. I, I was thinking we were sort of almost going to a, to a, a really – well, there you go. There you go. You never yeah. know. The now, menthol. The, the menthol is, threw let, me. Let me ask you a question. What wine? What wine? I was, you know, I swear to you, I was thinking, I was in the white category. It was the menthol that put me there. Yep. I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess menthol and tannin. Is it a, a, a chew boy? Petite Syrah. Yeah, Merlot. <laughs> that's funny. That is funny. <clears throat> yeah, well, there you go. That's So that was a lot of help for me if I were buying that <laughs> wine. All right. Mine is not a wine description. It's um, it, it's from a wine writer talking about wine pairings. Uh, it's a national newspaper and a national writer who often has the I'm so cool tone, and it's here. This is what he wrote. One of my preferred cheese pairings is a chilled glass of muscadet and a ripe slice of local goat cheese. This pairing never disappoints, at least on a balmy summer's evening. But what about in the depths of winter, when you've enjoyed a first course of potted shrimps and white burgundy, followed by beef and mature red Bordeaux? Oh, dear Lord. So, first <laughs> off, he's making up words. There is no such thing as shrimps. Because shrimp is the plural of shrimp, <laughs> but never okay, disappoints. Okay, now who's sounding snotty? Ne ne never disappoints <laughs> is like the, the is if you put never disappoints in a sentence, it shows that you don't know how to write. Summer's evening, not how about a summer evening? It's it. These are all these things that people do to sound like they are. They are. I just super want his chef. Look right? at what he's eating there. He's that you know potted shrimps. The question is how many how many acres does he have in the manor home? Because yeah. he's clearly upper class there. Yeah, yeah. See? It's it's. You're living in your little house see, in Sacramento. You're not getting any shrimps, are you? This is why people hate wine snobs because <laughs> they they talk that way, they write that way, and frankly. They Frankly, us... Scarlet, you don't give a no, damn. No, actually, I love them. You know why? Because they let us do our really horrible wine writing That's segment. true. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We'll talk more about natural wine in the second half of the show. We're going to take some questions, and we have some historic history moments, too. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. There are a lot of reasons to love wine, and we think one of them is that it's both a player in and a subject of history. I'm not sure if that made sense, but it, it must. <laughs> 
tell me tell me that made sense, Paul. Sure. Okay. It made sense. <laughs> All right. Well, what we're saying is it's time for our wine history segment that we call Historic History Moments. And mine is less a moment and more a thing about wine for centuries and centuries because wine used to be really bad until they basically learned how to seal it. Yeah, well, it used to be different. Yeah, well, it was really bad. <laughs> especially You aren't that old. Well, I but I I remember when I was like, no, we're talking about uh, we're talking about a thousand, two thousand years ago before wine when it came out when it was made fresh, it was it was it, it was okay, but it didn't it didn't store well because they didn't know how to store it. In fact, one of the ways that they used to store wine was put it in in a big clay amphora and and, and cover it with olive oil. The mm-hmm. olive oil, in theory, was to protect it against, protect it against the air. air. Right. They didn't know right. the air would, but it would. It would. They also stored it in animal hides. But it was perfect because when the wine eventually turned to vinegar, you had salad dressing there you ready go. made. Those they're ahead of the time. They're, they're way ahead, ahead of, of the Paul time. Newman should have been paying attention to them. <laughs> Another way they stored it was in animal hides, which of course yes. Uh, Talk lent, about a perfect match with goat cheese. I was gonna say <laughs> a certain barnyardness there, but this is a list of a few things that I was digging around that I saw that I've seen the different references to stuff that gets that got added into wine. Uh, we're talking a few centuries ago. They added salt. They yes. added burned salt. They added boiled wheat. They added cloves and cinnamon and cardamom. They added tree sap. They added holly leaves and pepper and ash and eggs and, of course, egg shells and sand and sand and river water. And, of course, they added lead. Because lead actually made it sweet, and they were going to die anyway. So what's what your point, Rick? My point was their <laughs> wine wasn't that good. Yeah, but you know what? I want to it talk about natural. that a little just, bit. That I, one actually made all be natural. Actually, those most of those are natural. But I want to point something out here that one of the things that you know very well is that a wine that has a high amount of tannin in it tastes pretty rough in your mouth, and if you eat it with something that has salt on it, that tannin disappears. Well, yes. Adding salt to red wine is a cheap parlor trick. It's true. It's true. In fact, when uh, one of my jokes, which is actually less a joke, is when I'm people are talking about food and wine pairings Many that don't work. Many of your jokes are less than jokes. Right? Well, I was saying less... Then, uh, <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Most, most, of, most of my jokes are more like bricks. So, uh, But... When I'm when I'm talking to a group about food and wine pairings, one of the things that I always sort of say jokingly is, <laughs> if the food and wine pairing is not working, add salt to your food ah, because okay. salt, the salty food yeah. will pick up the the acid yeah. in the wine, and your yeah. brain actually translates it into a pleasure yeah. sensation yeah. that's equivalent to sweet. It doesn't taste. One sweet, of the things I actually but, do yeah. with my students is I give them a little pinch of salt and a very tannic red wine, and yeah. I say just sprinkle a little in, stir it around a little, and they are amazed how the tannin disappears. It's why I carry that little salt shaker in my back pocket. <laughs> is that what oh. that is? All right. Well, I thought it might be fun to talk a little bit about the ancient Greek god of wine because— uh, Who carried salt shaker in his pocket. I don't believe he did, um, but he did have uh, a wonderful name. His name was Dionysus, and if you break that word down, dio is the Greek word for god, dios, and enos is the Greek word for wine. That's where we get enology, the study of wine. So dios enos became Dionysus, and he was the Greek god of wine. Fascinating character because throughout all of the stories about Dionysus, he constantly tries to trick people. And whenever people treat him with disrespect, when other, whenever people do not treat him as he believes he should be treated as a god, he punishes them brutally. Sounds like some wine writers I know. Well, but you know, it's, to me, it's also a good parable for wine in general, which is that if you consume it responsibly, it can transcend, give you transcendent experiences. But if you do not treat it with respect, it will ruin you. Wait, those Greeks were being metaphorical, weren't they? Oh, Greeks. Oh, tricky Gotta Greeks. Gotta love that stuff, Tricky huh? Greeks. Yeah. So we were talking about wine wine. We were talking about natural wine just a moment ago and, and, and jokingly talking about all those things, including gluten-free. lead. Gluten-free. That were both gluten-free and natural. Yes. I want to get back to natural just a bit more um, because I don't think we've ticked everybody off that we can. Okay. Uh, so let's... let's, let's uh, <laughs> so who do you want? <laughs> so, but I, I do want to talk about this church of wine debate. Why is there, why is there such Anger, it seems, on both sides. I mean, I my thought, I'll say, my thought is is not so much the subject, but is the way it's the marketing that's going on, which is that 
you know, one side or another, and it's often the, the side with the natural one, folks, is make it appear that, well, it does go both ways, actually. Make it appear that if you're not doing it my way, then there's something wrong with you. Well, pure and they both believe that pure and good is on their side in a rather interesting way because the people who espouse natural wine say that the methods are, that are used to make natural wine are pure and good, although they they're readily— the, Admit they, they're not defined, right? Well, they readily admit— that the resulting wine may often have what would be considered by the faculty of the University of California, Davis, flaws. Or by wine drinkers as yucky. Well, that's another way to look at it. Yes, I'm just saying. Now, on the other hand, you've got the people who the natural wine fans would accuse of making commercial wine. Right. And those wines, the, 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 the charge against those wines is that they're using all sorts of tricks technology. Dionysus and, might not be happy. And so their methods are impure. Right. And yet when you taste the wines, the fact is that those commercial wines are much less likely to have the kind of flaws that a natural wine might have. So in that case, their wines may be purer than the natural wine. So on the one hand, you've got the philosophy that says the methods are pure, but the wine may not taste good. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you've got the methods may be corrupt, but the wine tastes really good. And the question is, who's right? And the answer is, dear God, there's got to be a middle ground Yeah, and well, and I was going to say, this is why the um, this is why the interior hallways of the Church of Wine are such unfriendly places, yeah. because... Who was, it that, who was it that said that the reason that academic discussions, debates are so vicious because is the, the stakes, stakes are, are so, so small. small. I love that line. Thank you for knowing that, because I take a lot of grief for my wife for using that a Lot. And I think that is exactly the case. And, and and really what most people, the vast, vast majority of wine drinkers, and whether they want beautiful, elegant wines or simply uh, a nice nice drink on a summer's a summer's evening, yes. a summer a with balmy summer's evening with, with their, their pot of shrimps, um, <laughs> is they want it, they want it, they want it to taste good. All right. Yeah, they do. That's really and, and, and you too. know what? Fair enough. Tasting good can also mean that the wine has some element in it that right. you're not used to that may come from sure. some weird way of making it, and that's all fine. But where do you get off telling me what wine I should be drinking? Well, that is really also the answer. Is is you get everybody gets to drink the wine they like. Yes, and they you do. Get to drink the wine you like and and uh thank you let's all go to the party with our own wine there we go <laughs> you're listening to bottle talk with rick and paul when we come back more questions from listeners and next week that could be you stay with us you're listening to bottle talk with rick and paul we're going back to our mailbag and by the way if you'd like to ask us a question we can answer on the air or Anyway, <laughs> we'll give you credit if we answer it on the air. Go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. We have a couple of questions involving wine in restaurants. Uh, we always get questions involving wine in restaurants, yes. which tells you something about how restaurants maybe, serve how, wine. Yeah, and how, how much help they're giving to some of their customers. Not all of them, but some of them. The yep. first is from Concepcion Tadeo in Sacramento. And she asked, What's the etiquette for. Easy for you to it's, say. Actually, she asks it much better than I can read it. She asks, what's the <laughs> etiquette for asking for a taste in a restaurant? Uh-huh. And yeah. what do you say if they give you a taste? I like this, actually. What do you say if they give you a taste and you think there's something wrong with the wine? I say what you do is you spit it out and you say, how do you serve that swill in here? <laughs> yeah, ideally, if you could spit it at somewhere on the waiter from yes, the waist down. Yes, I think. That'll yeah. make you lots of friends, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, she asked a really interesting question. How do you ask for a taste. Yeah, What's the etiquette yeah, for asking yeah, for a taste? Yeah. Normally, when you order a bottle of wine in a restaurant, the waiter or the sommelier brings you the bottle, shows you the bottle, opens the bottle, pours you or someone at your table who seems to be important a little taste to sip it. But you've already ordered the wine at that point. Right. Now, here's the question is, she says, what's the etiquette for asking for a taste? That that tells me she's actually going to a restaurant where they're not pouring her sample up front. Right. And I think that at that point, when if a waiter shows up and automatically starts pouring, 
I think you should raise your hand and say, excuse me, but um, I, I, let me taste that before you pour well, the rest of the table. I think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take her, her at what I think is her word, which is that she, she, she wants to know whether she wants and to order that one. she may not like it. Well, first off, she's saying, so do, if I, I'd like to get that Zinfandel, but I don't know if it's any good. Right. Oh, I don't know if I'll like it. Right. Can I taste it first? Right. And, and, and. <clears throat> Conception, that's actually the simplest way to do it, is, is, is say, is it possible if I can taste it? There's a, there's a couple reasons why they'll let you. Often they may have the bottle open behind the bar anyway. Right. Often they may also— Not because the bartender is drinking on the side, no. but because they sell the Be, wine by the because glass Because they sell well. the wine by the glass. And even if they don't, some restaurants, many restaurants that are pretty good, will think, okay, you know, even if she doesn't order it, we will sell this bottle by, by the, the glass. glass. And, and hand sell it, and if they have right. enough bar traffic. And many restaurants will do that, and some of them will give you a taste. Now, if it's a very expensive wine, they're probably less likely to do it. But I say always ask. And if and if they can't let you taste it, of course, you just storm right out. No, well, no you, but, no, you know, the other no. part of this is, and this is something we talk, we've talked about many, many times, is this all gets back to that conversation you have with the waiter. Before you ask for the bottle, can you give the waiter the names of a couple of wines you like? Right. So that you can then say, I like this one and this one. Do you have anything like that? They can then bring you one and say, well, I think I think this wine on our list tastes pretty much like the first wine you mentioned. Why don't you try a taste and see? Right. So all of that. Or, or this. Yeah, I like this. And 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 you're right. And and you can help yourself. And, and uh, we say this almost every show because I love saying this is that if in other meals, if we haven't said it already on this show, I forgot I say it so often, which is when you have a meal and you run across a bottle of wine, you're like, take a picture of the label. Right. So you can say here, this is we had this right. the other week and this is what and I really, we really liked. liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but the other question she's saying is, OK, now what? Yeah, I tasted the wine. It seems something's wrong. And yuck. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the first the first way to to do that, um, if you're not sure, and spit one, it on the waiter. No, no, no. no. One of the still things, can't do that. One okay. of the things you could solve this problem perfectly, Concepcion, by inviting me to dinner because if something's <laughs> wrong with the wine, I will be sure. I won't be asking. I'll be sure. Um, if you're not sure, what you might say is to the waiter, hmm. Could you ask the sommelier or could the you, manager if you don't have one? Could 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 someone at the restaurant taste this to make sure that this, what that's telling the waiter is this lady doesn't like that wine. Yeah, this and, and you, it's okay and, to say. And a good waiter will in that situation say whether the manager thinks this wine is good or not. I'm going to go get you something that you're going to enjoy more than this bottle. Right, and and even if it is that taste that they gave you of that zin behind the bar, or if it's the wine that they're pouring for you that you ordered, right, it is never a bad thing to say that the wine might be have something wrong with it. Wines do have things wrong yep. with it. They could yep. have bacteria in them. They could be we call it corked. They're just they just yep. sometimes if and often if they're giving you a taste of the wine, it might have been open for a day or two. Right, so it could be old. Well, in it's, fact, I had a. I I had a terrifying experience along those lines. I, uh, a few years ago, I took my daughter out to lunch, and we had I ordered a glass of wine with lunch, and it came, and it was a white wine, and it was a toasty brown color. Yes, yeah, and good. right off the bat, I said, "Oh boy, this isn't good." And I smelled it, and it smelled like it was a toasty brown wine. It smelled like it was completely oxidized. Yeah. So I tasted it, and I said to the waiter, um, "I'll bet this bottle has been open a long time. Why don't you bring me?" the same wine but out of a fresh bottle and he said he came back with a different wine and said i think you will enjoy this one more sir and you know what that told me he was trying he was trying but it also told me that restaurant had cases and cases of oh, that they, old wine yeah. and they were just trying to get rid of it to yep. people who yep. they hoped wouldn't notice the difference uh, and i oh, have yeah. not been back to that restaurant because uh, that's yeah. a crummy that's a thing point. to do to your customers oh that's true yeah, i hadn't thought about that way yeah, yeah. You are more suspicious than me, my friend. Well, I have reason to be. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in, to answer your Did question. Did we answer Anna's, uh, to, uh, Concepcion's question yeah, at all? Yeah, I think we have. And, and we'll say it again very quickly is if you feel there's something wrong with the wine. Say you so. Say, you know, I think there's something wrong with this wine. It may just be old or stale or something or corked. Always use the term corked, even if you don't know what it means because they won't know. Well, they know what it means. But that, that's Some usually something. And that's yeah. a good. It's always a good. It is. But they, they, sh we, they believe. In fact, by the way. If they do have a corked bottle of wine, the restaurant's not going to eat the cost. They will go back to their distributor. Yeah. The distributor goes back. That's sort of part of the game. They expect there's occasional bottles that just are corked. So yep. there you go. 
All right. Our next one comes from Jonathan Adkins, who he lives in Minneapolis. He heard our show online. Cool. And uh, good for you. That's rickandpaulwine.com, of course, if you don't happen to be there now. He said, when we go out to dinner, everyone gets a menu. Of course. So how come we only get one wine list? That's a great question. Well, Jonathan, you know why? <laughs> because it, they want you to fight. They want, it, they want you to wrestle. <laughs> they love that kind of stuff. Now, yeah. it is, uh, it's, well, tradition is part of it. Tradition is part of it. Um, the uh, argument ahead. also be one one bottle of wine, so you only need one ordering. Right. And, of course, wine lists are expensive to print to a certain extent. But if they can print a menu, they can print a wine list. The real reason they only give you one is— because they want you to fight. No, it's no. because, in general, one person is paying the bill, and that person generally is the person who orders the wine. But right off the bat, you could, you know, if you are a good restaurant and you see, say, two couples sit down, oh yeah, then there's a pretty oh, good yeah. chance. And I've certainly been in a situation where we had a couple of master sommeliers at the table, and the waiter recognized the fact that everybody wanted to read the wine list. And the, as the wine list was working its way around the table so everybody could read it, he brought two other wine right. lists over so we could share. And you know, a lot of negotiation there. Um, and you're right. That was a group where I think the check got split into three different ways, but we each ordered a couple bottles of wine for people to taste. Right. And, yeah, it's a great question because if you wanted to sell more wine, great would, way to do it would be to show more people the wines you could right. order. Uh, exactly right. Especially if you had, say, two couples, you would very good chance to get two bottles. I always argue that anyway is to get two bottles at once, two different wines yep. when you're out to dinner because, yep. you know, that way, you know, you, if you're probably going to go through two bottles of wine anyway. And so you might as well get them at the same time and maybe get two different ones. And so you if can you take t- Rick right? out to dinner, order one. Two for next, me. That's right. And then everybody else gets one another one. So. <laughs> there you go. All, right. All right. Our next one comes from Lindsay Healy in Paso Robles. And she's got a small problem and I kind of like it. She said... I live in wine country, and my friends from around the state always want to come and have me take them wine tasting. But I don't know much about wine. So when we go to tasting rooms, what can I say so I won't sound like a dummy? Well, I like it that they're coming to visit you in Paso Robles. I like that they, you take them wine tasting. I like that you're trying. But you don't have to worry about that. There's never anything to prove when you walk into a tasting room. I hope that's true. If well, there, there should is, never if be. If there is anything. something that you have to prove when you walk into a tasting room, you should probably walk into a different tasting room. And by the way, your friends, they came to visit you. They're probably staying in your living room. Right. <laughs> That's right. Make them do the work. Well, but I no, this there there is another way to approach this, which is rather than talking about wine, which of course is difficult for Lindsay because she admits she doesn't know very much about wine. It would be easy enough for her to talk about where she lives. It would be easier to talk about maybe a winery or a vineyard that she drives by on her way to work or or on her way around town. And if she were to walk into a tasting room and the first thing she said to folks is, Hi, I live over in Atascadero and I drive by this winery every day and these are my friends from out of state and I'm taking – she will immediately be treated as a local, as a friend, as someone who knows something. Even if she doesn't know anything about wine, the fact that she's part of the local team – they will treat her very sure. well, and when she finds a winery that treats her well, now she knows. Every time she can come back, say the same thing, she'll get the same treatment, and her friends will be so impressed. That's true. Although I do want to go back to the point about not feeling like that you – not – I've got a double negative going. Don't feel like you need to prove anything. Don't feel like you're right. going to look like a dummy. You're, yeah, good, that's good advice uh, look, for you, I've Rick. survived, right? It, you know, it's, I've, that's made, right. I've made a career and I'm a dummy. <laughs> but, but seriously, when you walk into a tasting room, their job is to help you. It is like a restaurant, although we were just talking about some ways that sometimes they don't. But right. but their job is that they want you to be happy. They want to sell you on any good tasting room will take it from them. They'll probably start asking you questions. But you don't have to. Your job is not when you go in and taste a wine. You get to decide whether you like it or not. Right. Everything after that, that that's critical. Everything after that is up to you. If you want to know about the place, ask them about the place. If you don't want to know about the place, don't yep. feel like you need to. I remember when my first book came out and I sat in a ta- – we did a, ta- a, a signing all day in a tasting room. Which was about visiting tasting rooms. It was about visiting tasting rooms, absolutely. Right. And it was a really fun day because – there were quiet moments because people don't buy a lot of books in tasting rooms. and It's not why they're there. And that wasn't why they were there. But we got to listen to the questions that got asked over and over. And yeah. so many people felt like they had to ask a question of, of them. And so, so often they asked, where do these grapes come from? 
Right. And, and then the person would tell him, and you could see their faces. They had no clue what the guy was talking about. Right. You know, it's up right. there on the top of Stag's Leap in a little corner. He's like, they don't know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, right. you know, these were people that were trying to prove they were something. They going through the ritual. Yeah. And yeah. and you don't you don't need to try to prove something. It's not your job. Your job is just to have a good time going wine tasting. One more little tip from Lindsay: If she has a friend, if she has a friend of a friend who works at a winery, or if she can just visit a couple of wineries on her own before her friends come to visit, making that initial point of contact will make all the difference when she walks in the door the true. next time. That's true too, right? If you really want them, uh, and then you make them buy dinner. Absolutely. Of course, then they'll get they're, the wine list. Well, they're staying at your house, yeah, so you they go. better buy dinner. Right. And we have one more, and this is from Harold Wong in South San Francisco. A very good question. We could probably spend days on this one. What do wine scores really tell me? And why do the prices vary so greatly in wines with the same score? You know, Harold, oh boy. Um, yeah. I'll tell you, here's what they tell you. Well, I'm going to be nice for a moment. Um, There's a change. Yeah, yeah. I was going to go with the joke. Um, there will be a bad joke later. But let me, let me. Here's the thing. You know, in within the wine business itself, especially once again in those hallowed halls of uh, the Church of Wine, they hate scores. They hate scores because wine's so much more complicated than score. It's true. Having said that, it is true. I know so many folks who are looking for some kind of guidance, and they may not. Uh, make much difference between an 89 and an 87, but they do see wines that are rated really highly in the high 90s versus, say, in the low 80s, and they feel that they've gotten some guidance. It's the same thing as a wine writer saying this wine's really good. Having said that, assigning scores is such a complicated thing, so you have to use that as only one small bit of input. I'm going to agree and I'm going to disagree. First of all, I'm going to wholeheartedly agree that, for example, nobody rates paintings in the Louvre Museum on a 100-point scale. Oh, you didn't scale. see one my no- on my notebook when I went to Paris. Yeah, <laughs> the the Mona, Mona Lisa, Lisa gets 99 uh, points and the Raphael next. Ooh, yeah, tough score. I couldn't, tough score. I couldn't tell if she was smiling or not. <laughs> no, I, I, that, whole, that whole analysis really, I understand that and I sort of agree with it. On the other hand, when you talk about Beethoven's Nine Symphonies and, you know, the Ninth Symphony, does it get 100 points and how many points does the fifth? That's a ridiculous conversation to be having. There are only nine symphonies. There are 120,000 wines on the U.S. market. Right. And, boy, you got to have some way of exactly. narrowing down this exactly. field. What a score will tell you is whether the person who wrote that score really liked that wine or not. Now, does it mean you're going to like that wine? Absolutely not, unless you happen to be that person or your taste profile follows that person perfectly. And the the two most famous, let's be fair— are the wine spectator and the wine advocate, and That's both Robert of those, Parker for the wine the, both of those have a fairly consistent approach to the right. kinds of wines they like. Right. Now there are people in the wine business who prefer a very different style of wine. If you taste a hundred point wines. 100 points doesn't mean anything unless you know who gave the 100 points and what their flavor profile is so that you know, ah, I like what they like. I'm going to drink that. I don't like. I mean, I've read reviews of wines that got 87, 86 points, and I thought that wine's perfect for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, a way to think of that is just like with, with critics and movies is, you know, there's th- some critics will just hate action films. And a critic right. I worked with, a lovely guy and a great critic, and he always had a soft spot for action films, and so right. they always got better ratings. It is, and, and most people have such little information to deal with. You know, we people in the wine business forget how much access to at least you know, talk and wines that they have. Most folks, the only time they ever have access to wine is when they paid some money for it. and. Right. And so they want to know that they're getting something good. They want and some reassurance. They want some help. They need some help. And yep. and uh, yep. and that's and why— And it's the same reason we do—we ju- judge wines at the California State Fair. That's it's exactly why. It's the same why. reason we do all those other things. And it's because people do want some guidance. But I would tell you, scores only tell you a part of the story. You need to read the reviews, and ultimately you need to understand— the palate of the person writing the points before you can trust them completely. Right. Well, and if for people who do need help, you've come to the right place. Or, well, I thought you were going to say, let us know because we need help yeah, too. Yeah, no, we, we were we were going to actually— we Oh, were we were going to give them help? No, you come to us and, and we find someone who <laughs> knows, knows what they're talking about. As well. All right, we are zipping up the mailbag and moving on. If you'd like to ask us a question about wine, go to rickandpaulwine.com. If you'd like to ask us a question about, I don't know, getting help— uh, you can still go to Rick and Paul Wine, but well, we're not going to be much easier. People to you. tell us we should get help. That's what I'm saying. <clears throat> Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. We'll be right back. 
as it often is at the end of the show, for a food and wine pairing because we get those questions a lot, so we thought we'd answer a few of them. Since this is the holiday season and uh, there's a lot of food to be had and certainly a lot of drink. A lot of parties to attend. A lot of parties to attend. We thought we would take a look at what to have, what wine to drink with sort of the pre-dinner or the party-like Platter, the, the aperitif. The yes, the aperitif, which is your drink, and the platter is the cheeses and the the meats and the nuts and, and the, the veggies and dip and all of that kind yes, of stuff. Yes, the veggies the and dip. The little cheesy bits. Yes, the little cheesy bits. Uh, and and those are lots of different flavors, lots of different problems. Anyway, so I go with what I always go with, and I have to say I go with this not just because my wife always goes with it, although, frankly. She's always happy. That's when a good I, enough reason. It, frankly, it's a much better reason. Um, it is any kind of good bubbly, and, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. from a, it could be something so so simple as just some, a light and fluffy prosecco to a beautiful, elegant champagne. But but sparkling wine handles this range of flavors so well, and you're at a party, and it's fun, and and you'll just you'll have a lovely, lovely time. And see, I when I say I start talking about champagnes and sparkling wines, the words "lovely" just flow <laughs> from me, don't they? Well, so, what would, what would you suggest? Well, I'm going to suggest something else. Although I, I the prosecco is sort of an interesting idea. I'm going to go for a riesling for a couple of reasons. Huh? Same kind of basic flavor profile, which is more delicate, a uh, little lighter. But the other thing is rieslings have low alcohol, hmm? and uh, I think early in the evening it probably makes a certain amount of sense to not get too potted early on so that uh, you can enjoy the wines with dinner and the rest. And the one thing that happens with bubbly is that your body absorbs alcohol straight through the palate with bubbles. With Riesling, you can drink it and still feel like you're capable of driving all the way to the dining room table where you can sit down and start eating dinner. Right, and whether you are having a party with people you work with or your family, it's probably always a good idea to let them get drunk first. <laughs> Remember Dionysus. Treat him with <laughs> that's respect. That's right. So that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the air, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. We'll always be nice, we promise. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's that all wine is good wine, no matter what they call it. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.